Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is December 12, 2021, and I am your host, James Myers. It is an honor to be joined in dialogue by participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. Today is our sixth and last session on the Republic, covering part of Book 9 through to the end in passages from Stephanus references 587c to 621d. I'll invite participants to exchange their thoughts on the text, and as they do so, I will briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted on the shared drive that is linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, I would ask that you relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. Calling your first name as it appears on your screen profile, I'll invite you to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving precedence to those who haven't spoken before. After we finish recording in two hours, I invite any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Before introducing today's reading, I want to let everyone know that we will be taking a break for the holidays. Season two of Plato's Pod will continue in the new year on January 9, when we will begin by reading Philebus, which picks up on the Republic's themes of differences and limits, and the one and the many. So two weeks ago in our fifth session on the Republic, we examined the knowledge of the philosopher, which Socrates said begins with number and calculation. This is the first order of knowledge, he says, that allows the application of reason to distinguish the differences between eternal unchanging being in the past and the future, and the uncertainty of becoming in the present. Our thinking on the contrast of being and becoming led us to another fascinating discussion on the nature of time, which we may have the occasion to revisit today when we look at the proposition that the soul is immortal. In our last session, we also discussed dialectic, which Socrates said this philosopher uses to secure knowledge from first principles. Today, we might examine dialectic's role in distinguishing the real, which is the changeless state of being in the past and future, from imitations of the real in the changing and uncertain state of the present. Imitations are distinct variable copies made from the one and only form of a thing, and Socrates launches an attack on Homer in warning against distortions of knowledge in the imitations. And now that we are at the end of the Republic, we can reach our own conclusions on the nature of justice. At the dialogue's beginning, Socrates, Adamantus, and Glaucon set out to discover the justice in the city, thinking that in finding it, they would also locate justice in the individual who constitutes the city. What will we conclude today? And what do we make of the rather curious myth of Ur that Socrates relates in the last pages of the Republic, so specific as it is on the numerical and geometric composition of the soul that moves between heaven and earth in a thousand-year cycle? Is time cyclic? The question that we asked when we read the Critias last season, and what are the implications of that? So to help summarize and conclude on the knowledge gained from the Republic, I thought I would start today by asking a question. It was inspired by a headline a friend sent me about a new form of biological life created by humans, which have now gained the ability of self-reproduction. So I had no idea that our knowledge of science had progressed as far as the creation of this new life form called xenobots, because the biological creatures can be programmed like robots. 
it made me wonder, and this is the question I would start by asking before we go to the subject of imitation. The question is, what if we were like gods? What lessons would we impart to the forms of life that we create for the health of their republic? And so I want to put that question out there. And I want to put it in the context, perhaps, of the part that goes from 590D to 591A. And I'll just read it here. Uh, it's on the front page of the notes. It says, therefore, to ensure that someone like this is ruled by something similar to what rules the best person, we say that he ought to be the slave of the best person who has a divine ruler within himself. It isn't to harm the slave that we say he must be ruled, which is what Thrasymachus thought to be true of all subjects, because it is better for everyone to be ruled by divine reason, preferably within himself and his own, otherwise imposed from without, so that as far as possible, all will be alike and friends governed by the same thing. This is clearly the aim of the law, which is the ally of everyone, but it's also our aim in ruling our children. We don't allow them to be free until we establish a constitution in them, just as in our city, and by fostering their best part within our own, equip them with the guardian and ruler similar to our own to take our place. Then, and only then, we set them free. So I've got actually this you know, little news clip about these xenobots at the bottom of the screen here. It was uh, published uh, on December 2nd, and it was in a number of news sources, CNN, this is Smithsonian Magazine, it was in Quanta Magazine. Um, so these are living biological creatures that can be programmed like robots, um, but they are biological and living and they have the ability now to reproduce. And so it just occurred to me, you know, as we read the Republic, you know, that we're talking about, you know, creating a civilization or a community called a city. Um, but, you know, what if we were able to create a city? So what if these xenobots actually gain consciousness and could organize themselves and we are sort of in the role of parents because we created them, you know, what, what knowledge would we impart uh, on them? And, you know, just thinking, you know, how do we summarize the Republic? What have we learned from the Republic, if anything, about the creation of a community and the health of that, of that community? And so I just wanted to put that question out there. What if we were like gods? What lessons would we impart to the forms of life that we create for the health of their Republic? I'm wondering if anybody has any thoughts on that. Or this part uh, that I just read here from 590D to 591A, this idea that, um, you know, governing yourself from within uh, and, and divine rule. Um, and what is meant by the word divine, by the way, in this sense? Um, so let's consider, uh, let's consider those thoughts and start with Moshe. Um, I think you've got to be careful when you compare um, what's being said here in Plato with the idea of, of us, um, as great a group as this is, uh, being gods and creating, you know, some sort of uh, conscious uh, entity. Um, because uh, what he's talking about here uh, at 191, uh, well, first of all, you have to put this in the, in the Greek context of arete, okay? which is the goal of the city to perpetuate itself. Everyone in the city shares the same arete, which I, I, I don't want to call it a spirit, I, it, and I don't want to call it a, a, a mythology. It's sort of in between that. It's like when you wake up in the morning, 
you know, you're going to do those things that are going to advance the city and advance yourself. Any advancing of yourself has to be toward the advance uh, of the state as well. So in this, we have, we want to exercise over children and the refusal to let them free until they have established in them a principle analogous to the constitution of the state. This is another way of saying that they have, have they are now uh, participating in the arete of the of of the city state, and and Plato has a particular idea of what this is, but the Greeks in general uh, might not share the same idea of how we inculcate this uh, in our children through um, rigorous training and all the other stuff that that goes on in the Republic, but they still have the idea that they're doing this for the the city state. And by cultivation of the higher elements have set up in their hearts a guardian and ruler like our own. So this reminds me that, that the moral people make a moral state. And a moral state's a state incults, inculcates morality into the children. So there's this self-perpetuating morality that they're trying, that this, this arete that they're trying to develop. And it could be either along the lines of, of the Republic or, or some other benevolent uh, uh, state mechanism. Well, thank you. And that, that idea of the self-perpetuating uh, morality, I think, is, is interesting. I guess, you know, what starts that perpetuation process? You know, if, uh, if something is self-perpetuating, something starts it, right? Or are these, are these new beings uh, naturally moral to start off with? I mean, what starts that process? What, what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of knowledge is it that that triggers that understanding of arete that you talked about, which I think translates as excellence or virtue? Uh, or are people naturally born with excellence and virtue? Uh, and is it a question of preventing them from losing that excellence or virtue? So, are we endowed with excellence and virtue at birth? Uh, and do we risk losing it? I mean, there's actually an interesting part in the dialogue here where Socrates talks about the soul gathering all sorts of barnacles as if it's, you know, if as, if, as if it's trapped below the sea and it's, it's uh, you need to hammer off these barnacles to really find the true soul. Uh, so, so it's an interesting question, Moshe. Thank you for that, the idea of self-perpetuation. Um, Bill, what do you think? came to mind for me was uh, in terms of society achieving these higher goals is to is to utilize or to develop or encourage the application of reason mm -hmm. and with I, I believe well it's free thinking here <laughs> but uh, it could be that reason will reduce the the influence of the ego because the ego and reason seem to be Seem to be in terms. It seem to be in conflict with one another. You know, if you're using reason, your ego can't can't be part of it, and vice versa. So I think you know, if I were to have, have the ability to construct these xenobobs, bots, then I would I would encourage the application of reason somehow, program it somehow, which would lead to wisdom. 
Interesting thought. Yeah. And, and, you know, how do we, how do we encourage that uh, application of reason? You know, I think the, we started with the allegory of the cave and simile of the sun and nature of the good in our first episode on the Republic. Uh, and, you know, then we talked about, you know, this idea that the soul has three parts, you know, you talked about ego and, um, and, you know, id, I think is, are the terms maybe that, uh, uh, that have been applied in modern psychology, but, you know, in, in Plato applied the the idea of the appetites and the spirit, um, or thumos, uh, and those are uh, mediated by reason. And so, how do we how do we teach reason? Do we put ourselves like the men standing on the parapet in the allegory of the cave, and do we teach these xenobots uh, through images uh, of here's how you exercise reason? Follow these steps, and you will know reason. Um, or is it more complicated than that? I guess is is an interesting. So it's a, it's a good question. You know, maybe it is a question of applying reason. Um, we'll go to uh, actually see Nuri with her hand up, and then we'll go back to Mo- Moshe. So we'll start with Nuri and then Moshe. The xenobots are either uh, kind of debatable whether they're robots or organisms. Um, they're definitely not like us. Uh, so how how the teaching would be very difficult. Uh, you know, I mean, you could program them for a certain way. Would they have feelings? Would they, you know, would they have all the senses? Could they cry? Could they, you know, um, emotions? Uh, what kind of a reasoning would they have? Is it going to be what you program them to? So I, I don't know. There's it's, it's a big um, question on that. Yeah, thank you. Interesting idea too. I mean, when we teach uh, someone to have reason, I mean, each person, I guess, exercises reason differently. And then, as you say, we don't know how these xenobots will evolve and you know what they will think. Do they have feelings? I mean, these are all interesting questions, but it's a question that, you know, maybe... 400 years ago, I was thinking this morning, you know, back in the times of the Inquisition, when, when the church, you know, condemned Galileo for thinking that the earth revolves around the sun instead of the other way around, that, you know, even to think back then that we would be able to create life, as we have just done, apparently, I didn't know this, but we've just done this, uh, you know, maybe that would have been thought, well, maybe that's the role of God, and we should be playing the role of God, and maybe we would be condemned for or, you know, having this creation. Um, but now that we do, you know, it's it's a question of, you know, what are the next steps, you know, should these things gain consciousness? So I bring this up just by way of kind of helping us to summarize the Republic and what we've learned about the creation of a, of a civilization. Um, so we'll go to Moshe and then JK. Um, I, I want to make two remarks about this. Uh, one is that the, it, we're going to exercise authority over our children and the refusal to let them free until they establish in them the principle analogous to the constitution of the state. Free freedom in the, in, in most freedom in the Greek sense and, and freedom in, in most philosophical senses is not something that I'm born with. It's, it's not as if um, you tell me I have to get a shot. You're, you're imposing on my freedom. You're taking my freedom away. Because you don't have any freedom 
per se. You have the freedom that the government or the state gives you. Okay. So when we're saying we let them go free, it's not as if every man for himself, do whatever it is you want to do. There is no such freedom in that way. You have the freedom uh, to be a carpenter or a merchant or a guardian or something like that, living within those rules that have become part, part of you. So until you learn that, you cannot, you know, you cannot be free. There is no, like the American notion of I'm, I'm born free and you can't tread on me. The other thing is that I want to point out is this idea that the soul um, develops mollusks or barnacles or something like that. And it's a very different understanding of the idea of the soul uh, than what is given in the Phaedrus, where the, uh, the souls are clawing at each other and grasping at each other, trying to get close to the forms, uh, uh, because the closeness to the forms is what makes the gods the gods. And so here we have in the Phaedrus that the, that the souls are eternally, in a pre-birth sense, grasping and clawing at each other. And it's really a very violent picture to get close to the forms. But once they get into a human form, then it starts to, um, to develop, uh, you know, the, the soul gets lazy and barnacles can grow on and things like that. Well, what other sort of organism uh, or thing or idea or concept uh, has this sort of uh, dual and what I would take to be um, contradictory um, uh, properties? It seems to me that maybe, um, you know, these aren't, these aren't contradictories. Maybe they're, they're contraries because, you know, you can't say that, you know, Socrates is sitting is true at the time that Socrates is sitting and false when he's standing up, you can't be both sitting and standing uh, at the same time. But, you know, can, is the soul the kind of thing that that it really has no particular properties? It's just when it's uh, inside a human, uh, it, it can get all crusty and, and moldy. And when it's outside a human, if that's if that's uh, even a concept, it's, it, you know, it can claw and strain to get to the uh, uh, to get to the uh, the forms. Why isn't it one way or the other? Why isn't the soul always going after the forms? I mean, what, what, what happens? Um, and, and this leads to the question of what Socrates was bringing up at the end about, does, is there something in the soul that would kill it? You know, like a, like a, um, uh, like a mold or a disease. He was talking about the mold and corn, and, you know, diseases and certain types of things. And his argument is no. But my argument is perhaps Socrates is wrong. Perhaps I, there is something in the soul that makes it so that it can die from within, okay? Because it can't be, you know, it, it, the soul can't be just, you know, something that, well, I'm out of the body, therefore I can go and, and learn the truth, but I'm in the body, you know, I just turn to, I just turn to rot. So I, I wanna bring that up as an idea that there might be, you know, the idea of the soul might be a little bit more uh, subtle um, and, and, and um, uh, maybe there is something in the soul that makes it so that it, it can die from within. And if it can die from within, it can die within us when we're alive. Well, and, and that's a good question. I, I, I really look forward to everybody's opinion on that. I think it's uh, it's something that's very critical to this. You know, you, you've talked about, you've touched on this 
proposition that Socrates makes that the soul is immortal. Um, and you also asked, you know, an interesting question, does the soul have any particular properties? Uh, which is another thing I think we can consider, you know, whether you call it the soul or the motivating force or whatever it is inside us uh, that kind of motivates us, uh, you know, what kind of properties does it have? Is it free when it's born? I think you, uh, you raised that, uh, you raised that uh, question as well. So uh, a number of interesting things to think about there. So thank you for those questions. And we'll go to JK, then Nari, and then Bill. JK? Yeah, the question of uh, these robots <clears throat> um, being, uh, you know, how they should be programmed and so forth. And and um, that, you know, raises all kinds of questions about uh, if they're, they can be programmed, then, then do they have any uh, free will? And, uh, and if, uh, if they do, then, then how can you program them, right? Uh, so it's kind of, um, you know, Interesting that the, um, you know, the, yeah, this touches also on uh, this discussion about the, about the soul. Uh, you know, what is the soul, you know, if without making it purely a theological question, but more of a metaphysical, maybe a more philosophical question about the soul. Um, you know, the, the soul may be just the um, one's um, understanding of oneself as a, as part of the totality, and and if you lose a sense of that totality, you know, in terms of your relation with uh, with nature, with other with uh, other people in society, with um, <clears throat> um, you know, then then that's if you lose a sense of that totality, then you you have uh, lost something of the soul, perhaps. And maybe the soul is 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 something that, um, in that sense, it's it's eternal because it is the totality of what we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, I, I kind of, I'm still kind of on the on the fence about, the, you know, what the soul is, and whether it's uh, yeah in, in eternal. I mean, um, you know. So you know, comes down to the question of uh, you know we. Uh, uh, or, or, or we we just came out of uh, came into existence out of nothing, or it had to, had to be something there before we even came into existence. Yeah, so it kind of raises some interesting questions, and about what these uh, robots are. Are they are they really like us, or can they be like us? Or if they're like us, then we should we treat them as uh, uh, with respect? Uh, in regards to their free will, if they have a free will, if they if they can if they can be uh, uh, begin to think and act like us, and then should we treat them as as beings with free wills, like persons, so forth? Yeah, raise some interesting questions. Thank you. Thank you, and, and you mentioned some interesting points. You know, this this idea of the soul is the understanding of the self, and I would just call everyone's attention to an interesting few words around uh, 611b um, when Socrates says then we mustn't think such a thing for the argument doesn't allow it nor must we think that the soul in its truest nature is full of multicolored variety and unlikeness or that it differs with itself so you know there they're saying that uh, the soul doesn't differ with itself so the soul is a unity 
Uh, and I think that kind of maybe touches upon what you were talking about, you know, the, the, the sum of everything that, that is the self uh, as being the soul. Um, and so it's an interesting idea. Um, and then you also raise the question, does something come from nothing? You know, so if the soul dies with the body, which is something that we can consider when we talk about this proposition that the soul is immortal, if the soul dies with the body, what causes a new soul to come to being? And does that mean that the soul is always attached to the body? Um, so it's a question I think that, that uh, you know, maybe Socrates has one view and others have others views on that. So, I mean, let's, let's explore that, that, those questions, because I think they touch very much on today's reading and, you know, certainly the totality of what we've considered in, you know, the, these six sessions on the Republic. Uh, we'll go to Nuri and then Bill. Yeah, uh, James, just something you just said about uh, the soul um, being attached to the body, like the Socrates think that maybe there's, the soul has many bodies, like a, a kind of reincarnation, and it could probably die with the last. Uh, something I read somewhere about that, but I mean, he he did say life belongs to the soul. And and also that uh, we have some things that are perceptible, that are composed of parts which are subject to dissolution. And then on the other hand, we have some things which are perceptible and are intelligible that can grasp at thoughts. And they're ex exempt from dissolution, destruction. That is the soul. So. Um, he had two things, uh, opposites, the same thing, but being opposite. One can be destroyed and one can't, which is soul. So um, going back to, to the text of that. Thanks. Thank you. And, and, you know, you mentioned the idea of parts, you know, and certainly there's discussion. Uh, it's around 604 C to D. Uh, and also 602, um, where Socrates talks about, you know, two parts of the soul, one is rational and one is irrational. Uh, and the challenge he's saying is to make sure that we govern ourselves with the rational part. Uh, and that leads, I think, to what Bill was saying earlier about reason, the application of reason. Um, so I was very interested, actually, in this concept of rational versus irrational, and maybe we can get some thoughts on that. Um, you know, is, and I'm just thinking, you know, a little bit mathematically here, rational uh, is always divisible into equal parts, uh, whereas irrational is unlimited. So there's limits in the rational, and there's no limits in the irrational. And so why would a soul be constructed uh, with this so-called irrational part that has no limits, but leads to all sorts of problems, right? So if Socrates says we should be governed by the rational part, uh, why is a soul built with this irrational part that could lead to all sorts of problems? Uh, and so I'm just wondering what, what people think about that. Um, so we'll go to uh, Bill and then JK. I see, I see the soul as being a kind of a repository of uh, all the noble qualities like love, duty, reason, and so these can be accessed at any time if, you know, if we let our ego go. And, um, you know, in that sense, it can be immortal. 
because these qualities are, are always there, not in ourselves and in, in, in other, other folks as well. So they're immortal, and not in the sense of us as beings, but as a community, they're there. Um, yeah, that, that's about all I wanted to say. Thank you. And, and just, you know, when you, when you talked about the repository, which I thought was a really interesting word that you used, uh, it made me think of right at the end of the Republic at around 621C, um, they, you know, Socrates talks about Ur's story wasn't lost, but preserved. Uh, and so was maybe this kind of repository because, you know, they just finished talking right at the end about, you know, kind of the the mathematical and geometric nature of the soul and it's this ability to preserve uh in the soul these things um you know when you called them noble qualities uh and certainly the soul i guess has noble potential um but then you know again we get these barnacles and mollusks all over our souls and sometimes they're just not allowed to to shine uh so uh, interesting use of that word repository. Thank you for that. Um, we'll go to JK and the motion. Quiet. So I wonder if uh, you know you could have uh, you could have uh, a, a rational you know universe, right? Or create a rational universe, or create a rational society, you know, and um, in itself by itself. Without the without the uh, without the irrational uh, parts of of existence, you know. So you know. Um, so could you have one without the other? You know. I mean, you know, if there was only the rational, you mentioned that maybe there's these two parts of the soul, right? Could you have just a just a rational soul without the irrational part? Right, and you said that the irrational, irrational part is is infinite, without limit, but the rational has a limit. <clears throat> you know, I'm just wondering if you could have one without the other. I mean, what what kind of universe would that be? Uh, what kind of life or society would that be? Um, because it, I would assume that uh, <clears throat> the uh, newborns are coming into the world without without uh, with less or uh, rationality right and we have to you know um they they have to gradually learn to be rational right um so why why do children play with toys that don't make sense to us but they they enjoy you know we understand that they enjoy toys that um, that are not that are based on fantasy not 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 um, not realism <clears throat> and i think the rational leads us you know towards the understanding of so-called reality but reality distinguished from uh, from the irrational right from un unreality right so could you have one without the other and is it is it realistic to separate them you know um so sharply and so um, distinctly. Fascinating question. It's uh, it actually makes me think of my one of my favorite things to watch is the old Star Trek series from the nineteen sixties, where you've got the 
you know, the Vulcan Mr. Spock, who's always rational and logical, uh, compared to the humans who are running around and they're kind of like irrational and somehow always the human spirit comes out and, and always succeeds. And so, you know, when you ask the question, can you have rational without the irrational, um, you know, you talk too about, I think that this idea of the rational maybe is that which allows us to discover, uh, to fantasize, uh, maybe to imagine, um, you know, and if everything was rational, would you be able to imagine, you know, maybe it's an interesting question. I just, I put on the screen here, this is the same, you know, drawing that I had um, in the last two episodes of this idea of time that I think comes through in, in the way Socrates describes it. And in, in the way that it was described in Timaeus, which we looked at last season and this idea of, you know, the past and the future being a straight line, that's the realm of being, which is always, uh, there's no limits in the realm of being. Um, it, it just always is, and it's unchanging. So there's no limits, but the limits come in in the present, uh, which is a state of changing. Uh, so the state of changing always brings us from one limit to another limit to another limit. And that's good because, I mean, that's how we live our lives. I mean, it would be boring if we didn't you know, if we weren't able to proceed from limit to limit and kind of discover our own path through life. Um, so, you know, this, this is this, you know, the, the rational part is, is maybe in the, in the present. And maybe that's where, you know, as Bill started by saying, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, being able to apply reason is to understand that rational part. Uh, and, you know, certainly last episode, we talked about, um, numbering calculation, which Socrates says was the, you know, is the first order of business for a philosopher, or first order of knowledge for a philosopher. Uh, and certainly in order to understand the rational, you need to be able to apply numbering calculation. Uh, you can't do that with the irrational, irrational, because there's no limits in the irrational. And the irrational is accessible by geometry, which was the second order of knowledge that Socrates said. So, um, so interesting thoughts. Thank you for that. And we'll go to motion and bill. Um, just one quick thing about your, your circle for the present, uh, your arrow for the future and your arrow for the past are both pointing in the same direction. And perhaps you did that on purpose, but that suggests, you know, a singularity in time. Uh, if you compare time to numbers, you know, we have negative numbers as well as we do positive numbers. And I would suggest that the, you know, that the, the past is going down metaphorically and the future is going forward. But that was not the main thing. Uh, a second thing before I get to the main thing is to, is to um, uh, challenge is not the right word, but to comment on what uh, JK was saying about, uh, suppose we had an experiment where we tried to have a completely rational society. Well, we did have that, uh, and the experiment failed miserably, and it was called modernism because it came at some time in the uh, 17th or early uh, 18th century where people decided, well, we can use reason to solve all our, our problems, social, economic, um, political, and, uh, you know, we will take, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll only use reason to solve these, and it has led to a terrible world uh, because uh, the little irrational uh, human beings have to apply reason and they apply it um, they, they, they might apply uh, principles that are reasonable to the most unreasonable 
things in the world. And, and you can think of any sort of, uh, of atrocity that you want to in order to uh, instantiate that. But the thing that I wanted to get to was the idea of, of irrationality being somehow unlimited and rationality being, being limited. Because um, um, uh, if you take a look at Kant, uh, he, he talks about a faculty of understanding which does nothing but crank out concepts, okay? And some of the concepts that it cranks, it, it can crank out any kind of concept at all. And what it's looking for is some sort of instantiation in experience. But my point with that is, is not to support what Kant is saying, but by supporting the idea that through reason, we can come up with, with, with infinite numbers of, uh, of, of concepts or ideas. And um, um, and the so it's not just the irrational, but the rational part can also be unlimited. And one thing that I wanted to say about about irrationality, I think I think James, you made a, a comment about that cued me on this. There's the idea of incommensurability. Okay, and you know if you have a. a this was the death of the Pythagoreans, but you know, if you have a, uh, you know, if you have a, a, a triangle one by one, uh, the diagonal, the, the measure for the, you know, for the two angles, the the side and the bottom is going to be incommensurable with the, uh, you know, with the uh, hypotenuse. I, I, yeah, right. That's the, the word I want, and that is something that, uh, if if not perceptible, uh, in a a triangle that we draw would certainly be perceptible in a form because we couldn't even have the we couldn't even begin to instantiate that particular idea without having a platonic form that correspond corresponded to uh, the idea of incommensurability, which would be an infinite magnitude that could be uh, that would that, that would have a, a beginning and an end. Uh, infinite um, in terms of divisibility, uh, infinite in terms of, of, of points. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, thank you for that. Uh, the idea that reason provides that kind of infinite potential to the rational. Uh, and I think that's, um, I, I'm not sure that Socrates would disagree with that. I think that's why reason is, um, is really the the goal of of you know the application of knowledge is through reason, um, you know. I think the the idea of irrationality may be that that's where the potential lies is to be able to combine the irrational with the rational to understand the full potential. Uh, you know, certainly when we look at the platonic solids, the five, the only five solids in the universe that have the same, each has the same edge lengths, the only five of them, one of them is a cube. And the cube, uh, the electromagnetic wave is a cubic wave. Uh, and the cube has three irrational planes in it. And yet the sides are irrational. Uh, so it's an interesting idea that, you know, that there can be this combination of irrational and rational and again, this idea in the soul that, you know, do we believe that the soul is this combination of irrational and, and, and rational, as, as uh, Socrates says? So uh, certainly an interesting idea, but I, I, I'm, I think that maybe the you know, reason is what 
governs the, you know, the, or gives this full potential um, to, to the rational part of it. Um, so, and we can certainly um, discuss that further. Uh, we'll go to Bill and then JK. Um, I think, uh, you know, in the application of reason, it involves the, the uh, it's a process. So you're weighing the, the validity of, of, the, of the real versus the, the unreal. You're weighing the, weighing the, uh, the, the crazy versus the logic, logical part. So it's a process. So, so you can have, in, in terms of applying reason, you deal with both. You deal with the rationality as well. You take that into consideration and you, and one would hopefully would one dis, would one one would discount it? So uh, in that sense, you know it 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 does contain both. Um, uh, there's something else I was going to say. Um, oh yes, I was going to say that you know reason is is really not enough, as uh, as Moshe was saying, I believe, and it, you need love there. You need the, the application of both. You can't have reason without Without an, without without the application of love, and that'll really diminish the number of choices, rational choices that have been have appeared from from many to just a few that are that are most uh, most useful. Interesting the the idea of love there, and you know certainly in a community or in a you know what is called a city. Uh, but in, a, in generally in a, in a community, maybe love is necessary in that sense. Uh, and is love rational um, or not? Uh, so interesting, interesting point that you bring about. Um, we'll go to JK. Yeah, we're talking about the soul. If the soul is really a, a this kind of um, maybe a comprehensive understanding of who we are, right? Uh, in terms of, you know, um, you know, um, in terms of our, um, our relationship with reality, right? If we are, if that's a realistic understanding of who we are, um, then we have to take into account the the existential aspect of our of our um, of our lives, right? The existential aspect of our lives. You have to recognize that it's constantly in a state of flux is change changing and it's chaotic perhaps right and perhaps the, the universe you know can't exist without this this aspect of chaos you know so instead of a cosmos which implies that it's a it's a rational completely rational ordered cosmos there's an element of chance of of, of um of unpredictability of of, uh, of chaos, so you you know you could uh, you must, you have to call it a chaosmos instead of a cosmos. Um, so the um, so that's I think that uh, that that would be a more realistic understanding of what the perhaps the uh, the so is, or perhaps what <clears throat> what our what we are, not just as rational beings and or a rational beings or a rational universe cosmos um, somehow is distinct from that uh, existential aspect of of ourselves of the of, of, of existence right um, so 
you know, if you're going to talk about the soul, then the soul would also have to include that kind of understanding, our existential selves. And uh, so perhaps, the, you know, if, if you um, subordinate one to the other, you know, subordinate uh, this existential aspect of ourselves uh, to the rational, which is limited, you know, then we're kind of like only only uh, understanding a part of who we are, what what we are, which is not realistic. Right? A really fascinating way that you presented that. You know, this idea of use the word existential, which I think may be referring to that state of being, which is distinct from the state of becoming. Uh, you know, and so the state of being is that permanent, unchanging state. And the state of becoming is the state in the present where, you know, we'll look at this in a minute, I think, where, you know, this idea of imitation, uh, there's a lot of talk about imitation in this particular section. And we talked about it last time as well, uh, you know, in the, the present, this the state of, as you called it, chaos, which isn't necessarily, uh, we use chaos as a very negative context these days, but it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily negative uh it just means a state of constant change uh and you know i think we're lucky we're fortunate to be living in a state of constant change because otherwise we would be static and we would have no no chance for agency in life um you know so this state of the this present the state of becoming is that constant changing state and that's what socrates is trying to say i think in this section in particular about the nature of imitation so you know i think when you talked about the existential part of the soul that's kind of like maybe the permanent part of the soul the unchanging part of the soul and then you know you talked about this this you know state of unpredictability that's distinct from the existential um that can't necessarily be subordinated to the existential we need to find a way to to combine them make them live together and and i think that maybe speaks to this um so I think I wanted to go from here to the to the idea of uh, imitation, uh, and again we kind of talked about this. I think you know before you know this idea that you know the, the, the present is this changing state, and in the changing state, can you have the permanent state of anything? And there was this interesting reading here that. Uh, I've highlighted, I thought we could maybe do this reading. It's about a page and a half, uh, and it's between Socrates and Glaucon. Uh, I don't know if I would have a volunteer for either of those parts. The Socrates part is longer. If anybody's shy, I can take that one. Uh, and if anybody wants to read Glaucon. So if there's any volunteers for either one of those, um, I would be grateful, or else I can read the whole thing. Um, this I'm is, always good for Glaucon. You're always okay. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll just make me part of the thirty, buddy. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll take Moshe for Glaucon, and then and so maybe we'll we'll start reading this, and I'll I'll take Socrates then. So this is from five ninety six C to five ninety seven D, um, and I just I, I started it with this little excerpt here at the uh, top of the page from five ninety six B, and I put it next to a. Little quote from Voltaire that originality is nothing but judici judicious imitation. And a little part from 596b says, then let's now take any of the many's you like. For example, there are many beds and tables, but there are only two forms of such furniture, one of the bed and one of the table. 
And don't we also customarily say that their makers look towards the appropriate form in making the beds or tables we use? And similarly, in the other cases, surely no craftsman makes the form itself. How could he? So I thought we'd just read through this section here, 596C to 597D, uh, and I'll start. Uh, this is Socrates. For this is the same craftsman, for this same craftsman is able to make not only all kinds of furniture, but all plants that grow from the earth, all animals, including himself, the earth itself, the heavens, the gods, all the things in the heavens and in Hades beneath the earth. Don't you believe me? Tell me, do you think that there's no way any craftsman could make all of these things, or that in any in or that in one way he could and another he couldn't? Don't you see that there is a way in which you yourself could make all of them? Uh, what? Why is that? It isn't hard. You could do it quickly and so in lots of. Yeah, it isn't hard. You could do it quickly and in lots of places, especially if you were willing to carry a mirror with you, for that's the quickest way of all. With it, you can quickly make the sun, the things in the heavens, the earth, yourself, the other animals, manufactured items, plants, and everything else mentioned just now. Yes. I could make them appear, but I couldn't make the things themselves as they truly are. Well put. You've extracted the point that's crucial to the argument. I suppose that the painter too belongs to this class of makers, doesn't he? Of course. But I suppose you'll say that he doesn't truly make the things he makes. Yet, in a certain way, the painter does make a bed, doesn't he? Yes, he makes the appearance of one. What about the carpenter? Didn't you just say that he doesn't make the form, which is our term for the being of a bed, but only a bed? Yes, I did say that. Now, if he doesn't make the being of a bed, he isn't making that which is, but something which is like that which is, but is not it. So if someone were to say that the work of a carpenter or any other craftsman is completely that which is, wouldn't he risk what, saying what isn't true? That, at least would be the opinion of those who busy themselves with arguments of this sort. Then let's not be surprised if the carpenter's bed, too, turns out to be a somewhat dark affair in comparison with the true one. Then don't you want us to try to discover what an imitator is by reference to these examples? We get, then, these three kinds of beds. The first is in nature a bed, and I suppose we'd say that a god makes it. Or does someone else make it? No one else, I suppose. The second is the work of a carpenter. Yes. And the third is the one the painter makes. Isn't that so? It is. Then the painter, carpenter, and God correspond to three kinds of bed. Yes, three. Now the God, either because he didn't want to or because it was necessary for him not to do so, didn't make more than one bed in nature, but only one, the very one that is the being of the bed. Two or more of these have not been made by the God and never will be. Why is that? Because if he made only two, then again, one would come to light whose form they in turn would both possess. And that would be the one that is the being of a bed and not the other two. The God knew this, I think, and wishing to be the real maker of the truly real bed and not just a maker of a bed, he made it to be the one in nature. You have to lower the... Yeah, th that's actually the end of that particular oh. section. So, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Moshe, for reading that. I think it's always really good to read these and just kind of hear the words together. Um, 
So you know, thank you for that. And so I just wanted to, you know, just kind of discuss this idea of imitation, you know, and I think this is, again, talking about what happens in the present, you know, that, you know, if you accept this idea that there's the eternal being of something, eternal meaning unchanging, incorruptible, you know, however you want to think of the idea of eternal, uh, then in the present, you can't have that. You can only have the imitations of the eternal, which is consistent with what was said in Timaeus, you know, that, that time is the moving image of the eternal. Um, so I wanted to focus on this section and just, you know, get people's opinions on this, but also in particular, this last part of the session, the section that uh, when Socrates says two or more of these have not been made by the God and never will be, he's very categorical there. And then when he says, uh, the, uh, if he made only two, then again, one would come to light whose form they in turn would both possess. And that would be the one that is the being of the bed and not the other two. And I just wondered what you think that, what he means by that. Uh, any thoughts, uh, Moshe? Well, you know, some people say that the history of philosophy is all a footnote to Plato. And this is clearly uh, the, I don't want to call it the source, but for lack of a better term, the source of the Leibnizian identity of indiscernibles or the indiscernibility of identicals. If you've got two things that are identical in every property, then you don't have two. You only have the one. And uh, the God knew this, I think, and wishing to be the real maker of the truly real bed and not just a maker of a bed he made it uh, uh, the one in nature. So um, uh, if, if there's going to be uh, an idea, um, there cannot be two ideas that have all the, all the same properties. Can, can we go up to something close to the top? I just want to take a look at mm. one of the things that Laucon said. Go down just a little. Oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. Uh, Socrates says, it isn't hard. You could do it quickly and in lots of places, especially uh, if you were willing to carry a mirror with you and you spin the mirror around and then all these appearances come out. Laucan says, yes, I could make them appear, but I couldn't make the things themselves as they truly are. And Socrates here says, well put. He doesn't say true. He says that's well put. So. Are we to take from this that there's a suggestion that an appearance could really be the things themselves? Because Socrates is not is neither denying this nor affirming this categorically. He's just saying, good statement. I I, I like that. Question. And I mean, what do others think about this? You know, does, does Socrates agree with this or not? Um or is he trying to provoke further discussion? Um, or is he just being Socrates? <laughs> Never wanting to conclude. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's a good question. So, in, in, you know, or is there something in translation? Because we, I think we often find that translation uh, doesn't necessarily come out, or, or there could be ambiguities in translation. And so it, it's a good question. Uh, what do we what think the, about this? Could you restate the question again, uh, Moshe? The, the question is this. Socrates is saying, look, if you carried around a mirror, the, the question is, what is an imitation? Okay, Because we've got this idea of, of the form of a thing, the form of a bed, 
And then we've got the, you know, the artisan who makes the bed. And then we've got the imitator. The imitators could be of several sorts, but he's, he's teasing out this idea of an imitation. And he does that by saying, let's take the bed that some artisan had made and a table and a chair and a rock and a picture of and the moon and everything like that. And we'll simply take our mirror and we'll spin it around so that it reflects all of those things. And those reflections are imitations. And, and, um, and uh, Glaucon says, yes, I could make them appear, but I couldn't make the things in themselves as they truly are. And Socrates says, well put. He doesn't say that's true. He says that, 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 that um, uh, Glaucon's come up with, with an account uh, uh, even an agreeable account, but he doesn't say Glaucon. It's true. You cannot make the thing in them. You cannot make a thing in itself. So the suggestion is, maybe people, maybe artisans can make a thing in themselves, or maybe imitators can make a, a thing in itself. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that's yeah. So you're saying that the uh, that the uh, the artisans are you know why do we value art so much you know we go, we we put these works of art in galleries and so forth and because we value them as 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 um, not just as imitation but they are they are um, you know um, creations uh, in themselves and I was going to make the point that the you know the maker the original you know God also made the uh, made the the person who 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 is the imitator, you know, uh, imitate these these um, these things in, in the world, and so so because uh, what uh, these imitators uh, come up with make are are things also of value that we we rely on, right, uh, for our existence, or for our livelihood, and so forth. So they are of value, at, um, and so in that sense, they are, maybe they, they they do have a you know have a have a being that's uh, worthwhile acknowledging that it is not just not just a copy of something, but it is uh, you know being in itself. James, what section are we reading here? Could you just I want to check the, another translation. Well, this is uh, 596C to 597D. Okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's an interesting discussion. I think the, um, I would just actually highlight uh, this section here. It's in a further, it's in 601C to 602A. And this idea that uh, the user of an object has the best knowledge of its purpose. Um, and so even if it's still an imitation that's that's being used, the user has knowledge um, because the user is the one who's actually applying this particular thing. Um, but I do want to highlight the end of that section that we just read, you know, the this idea that um, particularly this last paragraph here that Socrates says, because if he made only two, then again, one would come to light whose form they in turn would both possess. And that would be the one that is the being of a bed and not the other two. Uh, to me, that's that's kind of critical because if if there were two forms of a bed and, and two were somehow 
you know, variable, like, like one varied from the other, like they couldn't be perfect copies because there would be two forms, right? So, you know, there'd be one type of bed and another type of bed. But when we say type of, it's type of something, type of one thing, right? It's not, you're not comparing a variable to variable, you're comparing a variable to a fixed quantity. Um, so that, I think that's what he's saying there. And I think that's a, that's a very critical um, paragraph there, uh, that, that, that particular idea that if, if, if you were to try to make two things that you call a bed, um, you would both reference them both to the same thing. There's still a bed. Uh, they're just two different versions of a bed, I guess. Uh, and, and that's, I think, what he's trying to say in this, in this idea that in the present, um, you know, we are, we're, we're making these copies, whether it's the painter, whether it's the carpenter um, or the user, you know, it's, it's all copies. It's not the original, you know, the original form that has its permanent unchanging being uh, is still there. What we do in the present is we make things that partake of these uh things that have this permanent sense of being, you know, so a bed will always be a bed in past and the future, a bed will always be a bed, but there are many versions of a bed, you know, back when they, back when Socrates was saying this, uh, they didn't have futons. We now have futons. So that's a different type of bed. Now we have beds that you get in a box and you blow them up and you sleep on them. They didn't have that type of thing then, but we still have a bed, you know, and they had a bed 2,400 years ago when Socrates was, was talking. It's just that the form of the bed changed, or the, the, the type of the bed changes over time. The form of the bed remains permanent. I think that's, to me, that's what he's saying there. And to me, that, to me that's a, it's a pretty powerful idea. And what others think about uh, that, Bill, your, your thoughts? or Well, I'm just trying to formulate them, actually, but... Uh... And I'm clear in my own mind. Um, but, um, you know, the, these imitations, they, uh, they tend to become the nature itself. So, if, so you know, if, if, if uh, one builds a bed from, from, this, from, um, from what is the ideal concept of the bed, from what Socrates has claimed is, is from the gods, then, then, this, then this 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 imitation would become the uh, the standard that we would compare, and so on. And each imitation would then become the new standard. So we would lose we would lose memory of the of the real of the bed that that was built by the or the, that was conceived by the god, so to speak. So, it, it in some ways it, it it degrades the concept. Of the bed. Now I know the bed is an unfortunate example because it's 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 a it's a physical thing, but it can apply to, you know, it can apply to our um, the qualities that we have. You know, they can be re they can be interpreted, reinterpreted, and each time they're imitated or reinterpreted, then they then that becomes a standard, and we lose we lose we lose um, certain. Um, relationship with with the real thing. 
It really, uh, actually, the use of the word standard, I think, is maybe very helpful there. Uh, you know, this idea that we always have a standard in mind that we compare things to. Uh, and this idea that if there were confusion as to the standard, you know, whether the standard is the nature of a bed being a physical object or whether the standard is of a non-physical object, uh, if you lose memory of that, I really like the use of the word memory there, because then if you lose memory of that, then the standard becomes degraded. Um, so very interesting thought. We'll go to JK and then Moshe. So isn't the, the form like similar, is that similar to uh, Kant's, um, you know, um, a priority categories, you know, that there is a, these modalities in the mind and uh, that, uh, that, uh, only uh, you know that helps it uh, understand what it uh, what it sees. Uh, you know, it helps us understand what we see. You know, so we see something. You know, uh, in its appearance, and then we only understand it if we uh, have a concept. You know, a a category to to uh, understand it. Um, so in that sense, you know. Uh, that could be very just utilitarian, right? Utilitarian in the sense that uh, that we come up with uh, certain forms that uh, that meet our needs, you know, that serve our purposes, and then we use that form to to imitate or create, you know, come up with uh, the shape and so forth. That uh, and uh, and uh, and we call that imitation because it's it's based on the same the same form. But um, but he's, so he's you know Pla uh, Socrates or Plato's is implying that this is somehow um, an example of of uh, these eternal forms, which um, which is kind of a little bit uh, you know I have a little difficult time understanding. Interesting question. You know, the and I, I, my knowledge of Kant is not. Uh, uh, is very rusty, so I would have to, you know, maybe Moshe can comment more on that, you know, but the idea of a priori, from what I recall from Kant, there was also the idea of synthetic, which would be maybe combinations of the a priori, but I, I could be getting this wrong. So uh, a good question is, and uh, in, in the, the use of categories as well, I think is, is an interesting way that you presented that. So uh, Moshe, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think Kant, helps us with understanding uh, Plato. Uh, I think we should, if, if we take a look at the place that Kant is starting as opposed to the place that Plato is starting, we see that Plato is starting with, uh, with um, uh, the idea of, um, of uh, realism. He's a direct realist, that the mind is capable of, of seeing, understanding reality directly. And Kant is, has no conception at all that we ever get to what he calls the thing in himself the, the thing in itself or 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 what is real uh, so I, I don't think that you're going to get a lot of mileage out of uh, you know out of uh, uh, comparing the two uh, or using Kant to uh, to understand uh, Plato but Plato does there's an interesting thing here that I'm not sure if I can tease it out but it's the idea of something being truly creative that others can only imitate. 
And I, I, I could be very, I'm sure I'm very far off the mark with this, but you know, sometimes I listen to um, uh, these reality TV programs, you know, where people are singing songs and, you know, they're copying one, but you know, the artist who wrote and sang the song originally and the person who wrote and sang the song originally created this and, and nuanced the, uh, the, the tone and the music and the, and the, uh, um, the, the syllables and the words in, in a very unique way that can only be, uh, if, if someone else can only cover it, they can only be like it. And the, um, um, it, it's as if there, there's an idea in Plato's heaven of the truly creative, which might somehow be accessible um, uh, to the soul when it's instantiated in the body. I don't know if that's a complete hallucination, but it seems to me that 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 it might be interesting to tease that out to see if it, you know, to if it ever comes to anything. And I'm going to leave that, but I'm also going to answer the question about translation that James uh, uh, brought up. Uh, in the um, in the uh, uh, the Shori, the Joet, and uh, the Shori, um, uh, the Joet, in your translation, where Glauc where Socrates is saying, uh, he says, um, uh, "Well said." In another one, he says, "Excellent," and in the third, he says, "Very good." Uh, so it's it, it's it, he's never saying true or false, but you know. Uh, it's very good, you know. What what you said was very good, as if you know. Well, I I, I go along with that, but I, I can't say that it's true. Interesting. Thank, thanks for that. The, the translations are always really interesting to uh, to pick up on the differences, and sometimes the translator's opinion comes through. I find too. So it's uh, it's interesting to pursue that. So thank you for that, JK, Did you have a follow up? Yeah, I was. Uh, I mentioned Kant because uh, there's a modern. Um, Neo-Kantian Ernst Gassir, who interprets uh, Plato uh, in terms of um, you know understanding Plato that uh, that there are these forms, right? Just as uh, Plato uh, described, but they are in the mind instead of out there. They're in the mind, and and that's where I got that that uh, reference to Kant from. But there's a uh, there's a short story. I mean, a short, a very short story by uh, Luis Borges. And it's about Shakespeare, and the story is called uh, Everything and Nothing. And at the end of uh, Shakespeare's life, before he died or after he died, he meets God and asks him the question. Uh, he said that, um, asked him, you know, um, he said, I who have been so many men in vain want to be one man only, myself. And the voice of God answered him out of a whirlwind, said, neither am I what I am. I dream the world the way you dreamt your plays, dear Shakespeare. You are one of the shapes of my dreams. Like me, you are everything and nothing. <clears throat> so that's, does that mean that the, the imitators are just like, uh, like many gods, you know, doing what God also has done? Um, well, it could be that the truly creative are not imitators at all, but they have done something like what God has done. Right, right. Well, so you could see the uh, imitators as uh, 
as a, as as also creators, right? Well, I'm I'm suggesting that that many artists, so-called artists, are really imitators. But there are some who are so original that they are are godlike in their in their creation. Yeah, I'm just going back to the Aristotelian Aristotle's uh, definition of of art. That is, is all imitation. Um, but in uh, you know, even if they're imitating, they're in, in some sense doing something, uh, you know, creative or expressive. You know, that's so. Uh, I guess today, nowadays, we don't think of artists as just imitators, but they're also expressing something or creating something. Well, it, when you take a look at the Mona Lisa, you could say, oh, you know, that's just a babe with a smirk. Okay. Yeah. But I, I don't think so. If you take a look at the statue, David, uh, you know, you could, you could say, oh, you know, it's a guy who forgot to put on his underpants and just has his toga over his shoulder. But I, I, I think in another way of looking at these things that, that Da Vinci's Mona Lisa has such originality to it that it is not an imitation of anything, but it is a truly creative, the, the, the product is truly creative. And the same thing with, you know, with some of the famous statues. Other artists, on the other hand, are, are complete imitators. But I, I'm, I'm asking the question, are some artists such a, a, a step above that they are godlike in the construction of, of some of their, uh, in the construction of the, the product of their work? Oh, sure. Yeah, there, there are, of course, there are degrees of uh, creativity and so forth. But, um, you know, it's uh, basically the same idea of uh, imitation, right? The greatest artists, like you mentioned, that the, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the, uh, the Statue of David or Mona Lisa, they're, they're you know, in one sense, they are, they are Im Im uh, imitations of, of, um, of real people, right? That they, they you know, but uh, at the same time, They've added something new to it. There, it there. There's this element of novelty, uh, originality, and so forth. But it's still a kind of uh, it's in the category of imitation, in the category of art. Well, I, let's take a look at not the whole Mona Lisa, but let's just take a look at her smile. Okay, now it's not just a smirk. It's not just a smile. I would suggest that what is captured in that is so original that it would never be found on any woman, either past, present, or future. And right. that right. is the, right. Very, right. the essence of creation and the essence it of also might be, uh, Right, right. It also could be a, an expression of, uh, of the, uh, the artist's own um, you know, experience of his relationship with his mother, with his uh, you know, uh, significant others, right? Um, so there's a lot of um, that involved, right? But these so, are uh, yeah. These are interesting. It's really interesting idea, actually. You know, to what extent does creation influence uh, subsequent creation? I guess is is maybe where we're going with this. Um, and I, I just wanted to maybe just before we go to Bill and Marie, I just wanted to call out uh, the section. It's in five ninety nine B. Which I've got here on the screen, and this is really talking about Homer, where where Socrates does this attack on Homer, 
he says actually, you know, that they will allow poetry in in the ideal city, but poetry would have to defend itself. But he really has a, an issue with with Homer uh, because of this potential distortion of knowledge uh, in this poet who presents this beautiful poetry, which is really compelling to people. And the poetry tells people that the gods behave in a certain way and the gods have certain emotions and all of this. And so people begin to believe it. And so that creation of Homer's affects subsequent actions. And so uh, in this 599b, he says, you know, do you think that someone who could make both the thing imitated and its image would allow himself to be serious about making images and put this at the forefront of his life as the best thing to do? I suppose that if he truly had knowledge of the things he imitates, he'd be much more serious about actions than imitations of them, would try to leave behind as many fine deeds as memorials to himself, and would be more eager to be the subject of a eulogy than the author of one. Um, and, and yet he actually does use the word distortion of knowledge at 599, 595b, which yeah, I guess that's maybe just in the translation that I'm using. Um, but uh, definitely, you know, this idea that the, you know, the individual creator can have an, an effect on, on people is, um, I think it's, it's undeniable. You know, we can go and see the Mona Lisa and we can be affected by it. So, um, but we'll just, we'll go to Bill and then Marie, and then I'd like to move maybe to this idea of the immortal soul. And then also this idea of harmony in the soul. Uh, Cause we've got about, you know, maybe just, 35 minutes or so left in the episode here. So we should cover that and, and try to reach some maybe conclusions about the nature of justice. So uh, Bill and then Marie. Um, I was thinking that is, 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 I was asking the question, is the bed a metaphor or something else? I would, I would imagine that it is because Socrates usually quite often uses these metaphors to, to illustrate something deeper. So I was thinking that maybe the bed could be the, the bed is a metaphor for for these for noble qualities, as I said before. And um, so you know when we we try to imitate those qualities through our daily activities, you know we um, we need to always look back at the original to see if it meets the intent. If we to make sure that we're not corrupting it. A good, a good point. And I think that maybe um, that maybe calls out again that part 601C to 602A where, where they talk about the use of something. And I think you you actually, I like the way you put that, you know, the does it meet the original intent? Uh, and I think that that's actually really, that actually makes it clear in my mind what this section 601C to 602A means is this going back to the original intent. So, yeah, thank you for that. Um, we'll go to Nuri. Yeah, so I just, hey, I just wanted to say that people were talking about a Mona Lisa. I was fortunate to see the original painting by Leonardo da Vinci in the Louvre in Paris. And also there was an, an imitation of the same painting in the Prado in Spain. And one was painted by his student. And actually the imitation, like I was, I was grasped at it because it had a little bit more colors. It was a little bit brighter, the, the, you know, so sometimes maybe 
the eyes of the beholder. The imitation is could be just as good. Um, so I just wanted to point out something like that. But we are we there is some value to the original, and I think people we place a lot of value in that. So I just wanted to say that. Thanks. Really interesting idea. I think we've all seen imitations of imitations. If we think that, you know, what what Leonardo did was an imitation of, you know, a real thing, uh, and then there's the imitation of the imitation. You know, so it's uh, it's actually really interesting, and, and certainly I think to the eye of the beholder, it, it has a different meaning to each of us. I wanted to actually maybe that's a good segue into this part on the proposition of the immortal soul. Um, and there's another reading here, which if Moshe is willing to do Glaucon, I could do Socrates, or if there's another, um, if there's another sure. volunteer. Um, okay. Uh, so we'll, we'll do this reading here and it's, it's from 609C to 611A. And this is the proof that Socrates offers that the soul is immortal. Uh, so if I'll, I'll read Socrates here. So Socrates starts, uh, well, what about the soul? Isn't there something that makes it bad? Certainly, all the things we are mentioning, injustice, licentiousness, cowardice, and lack of learning. Does any of these disintegrate and destroy the soul? Keep your wits about you and let's not be deceived into thinking that when an unjust and foolish person is caught, he has been destroyed by injustice, which is evil in the soul. Let's think about it this way instead. Just as the body is worn out, destroyed, and brought to the point where it is a body no longer by disease, which is evil in a body, so all of the things we mentioned uh, just now reach the point at which they cease to be when they are through when they are through their own particular peculiar evil, which attaches itself to them and is present in them. Isn't that so? Yes. Then look at the soul in the same way. Do just do injustice and the other vices that exist in a soul by their very presence in it and by attaching themselves to it, corrupt it and make it waste away until, having brought it to the point of death, they separate it from the body? That's not at all what they do. But surely it's unreasonable to suppose that a thing is destroyed by the badness proper to something else when it is not destroyed by its own? That is unreasonable. Well, keep in mind, Glaucon, that we don't think that a body is destroyed by the badness of food, whether it is staleness, rottenness, or anything else. But if the badness of the food happens to implant in the body an evil proper to a body, we'll say that the body was destroyed by its own evil, namely disease. But since the body is one thing and food another, we'll, judge, we'll never judge that the body is destroyed by the badness of food unless it implants in it the body's own natural and peculiar evil. That's absolutely right. By the same argument, if the body's evil doesn't cause an evil in the soul that is proper to the soul, we'll never judge that the soul, in the absence of its own peculiar evil, is destroyed by the evil of something else. We'd never accept that anything is destroyed by an evil proper to something else. Then let's either refute our argument and show that we were wrong, or, as long as it remains unrefuted, let's, say, let's never say that the soul is destroyed by a fever or any other disease or by killing either, for that matter, not even if the body is cut up into tiny pieces. But if anyone dares to come to grips with our argument in order to avoid having to agree that our souls are immortal and says that a dying man does not become more vicious and unjust, we'll reply that if, he, if what he says is true, then injustice must be as deadly to unjust people as a disease. And those who catch it must die of it because of its own deadly nature. 
which the worst case is dying quickly and the less serious dying more slowly. As things now stand, however, it isn't like that at all. Unjust people do indeed die of injustice, but at the hands of others who inflict the death penalty on them. By God, if injustice were actually fatal to those who contracted it, it would seem so terrible for it would be an escape from their troubles. But I rather think that it's clear uh, that it's clearly the opposite. Something that kills other people, if it can, while on top of making the unjust themselves lively, it even brings them out at night. Hence, it is very far from being deadly to its possessors. Well, you're right. For if the soul's own evil and badness isn't enough to kill and destroy it, an evil appointed for the destruction of something else will hardly kill it. Indeed, it won't kill anything at all except the very thing that, is, that it is appointed to destroy. Now, if the soul isn't destroyed by a single evil, whether its own or something else's, then clearly it must always be. And if it always is, it is immortal. Necessarily so. Well, so be it. And if it is so, then you realize that there would always be some the same souls, for they couldn't be made fewer if none is destroyed, and they couldn't be made more numerous either. If anything immortal is increased, you know that the increase would have to come from the mortal, and then everything would end up being immortal. So thank you again, Moshe, for helping in the reading of that. Um, and so this is Socrates' proof that the soul is immortal. And I think also he's trying to say that the soul can't be imitated. Uh, so we've gone through this discussion of imitation. Imitation is what we do in the present, uh, but the soul itself can't be imitated. And that's because it's immortal, he says. Uh, and I'm wondering what people think about this, in particular, this, this part at the end here, um, where he says that if anything immortal is increased, you know that the increase would have to come from the mortal, and then everything would end up being immortal. Uh, what do we think about that? You know, is it, uh, you know, is, is, do we buy that? Um, or do we think that uh, the soul comes into being and disappears uh, when the body dies? Or if part of the body is cut off, you know, it says if the soul, if the body's cut up into, many tiny pieces, the soul doesn't even die. But, you know, what if, what if, you know, if, if the soul is attached to the body and the soul dies with the body, you know, what if, uh, for example, I have an accident and I lose an arm, you know, and does that mean that part of my soul goes with my arm? Um, so I just wonder what, what we think of, um, of these thoughts and, and where we want to go with this idea of the, if the soul is immortal or not. So we'll take Moshe and then Bill. Well, uh, you know, clearly in the last sentence, uh, Socrates is telling us that the number of souls in the universe is finite um, because uh, the immortal cannot come from the mortal and the, and the immortal are not going to be uh, reproducing. There would be no, no, no sense for them to do that. Um, I, I wanted to look at the immortality of the soul by contrasting it with what I might think of as the death of the soul. And um, I, I want to raise that in, the, in, in, in terms of, of uh, asking whether uh, the beasts of the fields, lions and tigers, uh, have souls. Uh, I, I think that, um, I, I don't think that Socrates, thinking back on when he was talking um, 
before the trial about, well, all of this is before the trial, about, um, you know, the beasts in the field, that the beasts in the fields have souls, but they have sentience. And, and I, I think of the American experience in the South with the cruelty of slavery, uh, that some of the masters of the slaves were so cruel and beat them so thoroughly and denied them of any sort of faith that the idea was to make them into soulless animals, animals that would, would simply do uh, as they would were bid and not do anything else and were incapable of, 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 of any sort of creativity or freedom of thought or, or, or agency. Uh, because I, I think that, I mean, if, if you read some of the accounts uh, of, uh, of free slaves and also, you know, read historical accounts of, of some of the cruelty of the, of the Southerners, uh, white Southerners to the Blacks, that that was the whole idea was that it was possible to kill the soul. And if it's possible to kill the soul, um, then it's possible, that, then it means that the soul isn't immortal. So what is what what do you think of that? It's an interesting use of history there, you know, and and certainly um, I think there are cases. It's a it's a good example, I think, of cases where we don't necessarily see certain other people as having souls, or or if we do see them as having souls, their souls are of lesser value than ours, for example. Uh, and maybe history is full of examples like that. So interesting question. And then you, you know, you asked, do, you know, do animals have souls or is it only humans that have souls? Um, so good questions. Um, we'll go to Bill. You know, one way of the soul in terms of being immortal is if, if we have the same soul, all of us. So it cannot die because it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's in, it's in every sentient being. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's all mm -hmm. I want to say. You know, interesting idea, you know, and, and, you know, maybe this takes us right to the end of the Republic where they talk about the, or where Socrates gives the myth of Ur. Um, you know, Ur died in a battle um, and he was about to be cremated, but he was resurrected or brought back into consciousness. And he saw in this process, this cycle of souls, kind of there's four doors, two doors in the earth and two, two doors in the heaven, heavens and the souls circulate between these doors um, in a thousand year cycle. And this is what I said in my introduction, you know, is, is what he's saying here is, I'm asking, you know, is, is time cyclic? Is that what he's saying here? Because uh, I think there was implications of that in the Critias as well. Uh, and, and it's very interesting, you know, in that last part, when he talks about uh, this thousand-year cycle of the soul, he also talks about the soul paying a penalty uh, if it is unjust. If it is unjust, it will pay a penalty ten times greater than the injustice that it's caused. And if the soul is just, then it will receive a reward in 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 the same proportion, ten times greater than the justice that it that it that it uh, caused during its life. So he's saying here that that the soul, uh, it's not just what you do in this current life that's important. It it's that the soul's rewards and 
and punishment go on uh, in the next lives. And he uses this myth of Ur to show this cycle of souls coming down from the heavens and coming up from the earth and exchanging between these four doors. Um, it's a rather curious, uh, I said in the introduction, it's a rather curious um, way of winding up the Republic. You know, they, they set out to find out the nature of justice. They thought that they could, if they found it in the city, they would find it in the, in the individuals. And then they wind up talking about the soul. Uh, and then they wind up listening to Socrates give this very specific uh, indication of, you know, very specific uh, uh, forms uh, in 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 the myth of Ur, you know, so very specifically, Socrates talks about the the whorls. The whorls are, are the weights that hold a spindle down. He talks about the three fates, which is the the image in the the screen background that I've got behind me. The, the three fates being the uh, Kesis, who allots the you know the the, the threads of one's life. Uh, Clotho is the one who spins it, and then uh, Atropos is the one who cuts it or makes it irreversible. So he gives us this story as well in the myth of Ur. And then he goes on to give this very specific information about these whorls. You know, in, in the first one is scooped out, it has no top, and then you fit in seven more whorls inside it. He tells the order of their diameter. He gives the order of their speed of revolution, which is not the same as the order of their di diameter. Why does he do this? Is it just... Is this just Socrates being like, he goes off being kooky sometimes, or is there a purpose to this? Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, like, again, how does this tie to this question of whether the soul is immortal and how does it tie to the nature of justice? Um, I don't know what others think about this. I'll just present maybe this, uh, this section that we covered in an earlier um, discussion. Um, and go maybe here to this idea of harmony, uh, which I think may be some of that mathematics and geometry that are inherent in that discussion of Ur might be talking a little bit about harmony. And this was a part that we looked at previously in 443D. Um, and this idea really that, that justice has some connection with harmony. And so I'll read this bit. It says, however, justice isn't concerned with someone's doing his own externally in other words, in the city, uh, but with what is inside him, with what is truly himself and his own. One who is just does not allow any part of himself to do, to do the work of another part or allow the various classes with him, to, within, with him to meddle with each other. He regulates well what is really his own and rules himself. He puts himself in order, is his own friend, and harmonizes the three parts of himself like three limiting notes in a musical scale, high, low, and middle. He binds together these parts and any others there may be in between, and from having been many things, he becomes entirely one, moderate and harmonious. And then in today's reading at 619a, he talks about, uh, we must always know how to choose the mean in such lives and how to avoid either of the extremes as far as possible, both in this life and all those beyond it, which is another bit of a geometric reference, you know, mean and extreme is something that we talk about in the uh, uh, the golden ratio. Um, so, you know, just this idea of this, this harmony and, and, you know, if, if the soul is some sort of harmony unto itself, um, 
does this speak to any sort of immortality or is does this harmony come about you know if the soul dies with the body and is born with the body um is this is this harmony inherent in the soul is it just does it just come about on its own or is it something that needs to be taught uh moshe okay um the there's a I, I see at 443 B I, I see a problem um, because it's talking about all this self-regulation that you're going to be doing um, and each part doing its own thing and, and remembering if if we have a tripartite soul, one one of the parts of the, the soul is is going to be you know, for lust and sensual pleasure. Um, and 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 the, these things, although Plato, I know, wants to regulate it, if we throw the third part out and just deal with the higher uh, higher emotions and, um, and reason, there's the question, well, how do you know your soul is out of whack? You know, I mean, I, I, I probably, I probably go around thinking that my soul is pretty much uh, in whack. Uh, so I can't tell that it's out of whack, just you know, all by myself. But in the Lockies, uh, Socrates talks about the, the the soul being in the Dorian mode, okay? And the, the Dorian mode, you know, is a form of, of harmony in music. And the metaphor that Socrates is making there is when he's talking about, um, you know, Nicias and, 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 and Lockies who both... Um, um, you know, Nicias is talking, they're, they're all talking about bravery. And um, what, what they mean by bravery is, you know, one is saying that, you know, bravery is, is uh, you know, or courage is taught. You know, you, you, you teach a person what to do. And if, if they know how to do it, uh, then they'll do it. If, so if you know how to be courageous, you'll, you'll be courageous. And so there's the question of, well, how do you, you know, what, what, is, what is courage? And, and one of the answers that comes up to that is Nicias is saying, well, you know, courage is, is, um, is a soldier standing his own ground. You know, when you're on, in battle, you're not going to be running away. And then we know, you know, that, you know, uh, how brave Socrates was, who, who was in the Peloponnesian Wars, because we saw him at the, at the, at, at the retreat from Delius. Okay. Well, if bravery is a soldier standing his own ground, there's no soldier standing his ground in a retreat. He's out of there, okay? Yet we saw great bravery in Socrates um, at the retreat. So this brings us to the idea that sophrosune or temperance is going to be the soul in the Dorian mode. And the Dorian mode here is when what I'm saying and what I'm doing are the same, or they're they're harmonized. So if if a soldier, so Nicias should realize that an example of courage is not Socrates in a retreat, but it, it it has to be something else. And he may not be able to articulate what it is, but it is not. We don't get the idea of Socrates being courageous as a soldier holding his ground in a, in a retreat. So we need to find that way in which our actions and our words are coordinated. And this is what the Dorian mode is here. And I think that's what 
um, um, uh, I think this is what what you want to achieve at this 443, this 443B here. You want to you want to achieve this Dorian mode between something external and that is observable, like your language and your actions, uh, and your you know and your thoughts, which are you know which uh, uh, are, are those that that internal dialogue that we have uh, uh, that we have going on. So I want to. I, I want to throw that out as 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 my understanding, or, or how I try to parse, you know, this four forty three B. That actually makes me think. I like the way you put that. You know, the kind of consistency between the externals, what you say and do, the consistency with the internal logic. Um, so, you know, does that mean that the soul has this, you know? form of logic and that it, it can then present it consistently and, and that it is therefore an entity unto itself. And again, to put that mathematically, um, you know, we've got this idea of something that it is, is its own derivative. Um, you know, that's the, what we call E, you know, the base of the natural logarithm, it's its own derivative. Is the soul its own derivative? Uh, and maybe, maybe that's in a sense what you've, what you've said, you know, this idea of the what it does and con being consistent with its internal logic, and certainly in this section that goes down further, I'm not, I don't think we'll have time to read it from 591a to e. Um, there is this reference several times to this word consonance in the soul uh, or consistency, consonance in the soul, uh, in the need to cultivate the harmony uh, for the sake of consonance in the soul. Um, so interesting, I think, uh, very effective way that you put it, this idea of the external being consistent with the internal uh, logic. Um, so JK, your thoughts? Yeah, in terms of this uh, idea of harmony, I think it relies, like it's uh, mentioned, that it uh, relies on this kind of um, circularity of relationship uh, between the internal and the external. So the individual, you know, has a relationship uh, uh, first with himself, but then with uh, others, with uh, the society, with uh, the state. And so if there's a harmony between himself and the state and others, you know, then, um, then, the, um, then that, uh, his soul is in harmony. Uh, uh, so that's, the, that's a kind of an existential um, uh, circularity, uh, sense of harmony. And then metaphysically, there is uh, this kind of uh, perhaps also like this harmony between um, um, the relationship between the conscious and the unconscious, right? As well, that is, um, that is um, you know, uh, kind of a circularity of relationship. And, um, <clears throat> and so that, that would be more like a, like a metaphysical uh, sense of harmony yeah so yeah this kind of uh there's a the the idea of circularity that i think is is important perhaps it suggests that there's a kind of a you know the soul um uh has this kind of um a journey of e eternal return you know um that it is um it continuously comes back around even though it's it's uh, never going to be the same, just like no two uh, no two snowflakes are the same, except it's you know, and yet it's still 
it's still the same, seems like the same snow, right? Coming back every season. So uh, maybe there's this, yeah, this kind of circularity. Interesting idea in that reference to the, the snow and that repeating pattern that is in the snow, although each individual flake can be different. And, and certainly, you know, when, when we get to the end of the Republic, we see this idea that, um, you know, when the soul is about to be embodied in a new body, it's given a choice of, of what it wants to be in its next life. Um, and, and it makes that choice. Um, and it's that, you know, I think what Socrates is talking about is what you just said, JK, has this idea of this, uh, the soul being on a journey, journey of eternal return um, that just never ends. It, it's cyclic, right? So it, it cycles back and forth. And, and, you know, this, it's an interesting idea. I just, you know, I wanted, I wanted to um, highlight one section, just again, this part, uh, this idea that, you know, the soul can be, has this rational and irrational parts that it needs to balance according to Socrates which touches upon the, the, the three-part nature of the soul that we talked about earlier, the, you know, the appetites and the spirit being governed by reason. Uh, and in fact, at the end, uh, it says that, you know, even though the soul forgets from one life to another, reason allows us to actually remember a little bit about the past, um, more so than if we just forget reason and abandon reason, then we forget and we will make the same mistakes uh, when the soul comes back into being, uh, and it says that right at the end about her, but this, this part at, um, 604, uh, C to D, you know, it's talking about, um, you know, when we fate, when we have a misfortune, you know, it says, uh, the law says, doesn't it, that it is best to keep as, as quiet as possible in misfortunes and not get excited about them. And, you know, and then he says the logic of that. First, it isn't clear whether such things will turn out to be good or bad in the end. Second, it doesn't make the future any better to take them hard. Third, human affairs aren't worth taking very seriously. And finally, grief prevents the very thing we most need in such circumstances from coming into play as quickly as possible. Uh, and then he goes on to say, you know, what, what we're refer referring to here is deliberation. We must accept what has happened as we would the fall of the dice, and then arrange our affairs in whatever way reason determines to be the best. Kind of a really kind of a stoic, uh, maybe kind of um, uh, depiction there. Uh, but, you know, the, the soul having to kind of accept things as they have come to be, uh, but always use reason to, to determine the next step. Um, and, you know, I think that was it was kind of a powerful way of presenting that, that idea. And, and, you know, maybe again, to go back to what Moshe was saying, you know, to be internally consistent with the external actions. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't do us any good to continue moaning and weeping about things that we can't change, but just to think about things that we can change. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, again, what do we conclude about the nature of justice? Um, I'll just throw that question out in the last few minutes here. Uh, is, is justice something that's inherent to a city? Uh, is it something that's inherent to the soul? Or is it something that needs to be cultivated by, by reason? Um, and if it's cultivated by reason, how, how do we make that reason work? How do we avoid the, you know, states of unreasonableness? Um, so. 
Bill, what are your thoughts on the on the conclusion of the Republic? Bill, Socrates was was uh, was mentioning harmony, and uh, to me, that's where justice is. Harmony is the balancing um, of the true versus the false, of reason versus versus uh, versus uh, non-reason, if I can use that word. So, um, yeah, that's where justice lives in the harmony. Yeah, you know, and, and I think you're talking about differences. You know, being able to balance the difference. You use the word balance, which you know, I'm an accountant and I like that word, I guess. And it's uh, you know, in the last episode, we talked about the differences and the differences being that which summon the reason. You know, when there's when there's differences, the, the reason comes into play and tries to understand what these differences mean. And, you know, then it's a question, as, as you said, I think of finding that point of balance, um, you know, whether it's between the good and the bad. You know, at, at one point in today's reading, uh, Socrates says, for everything, is there a good and a bad? Um, and maybe that's ultimately what we're trying to balance. And maybe that's ultimately what justice does is find that point of balance. Uh, Moshe, your thoughts? Well, I, I, I don't think that justice finds a, a, a point of balance, really. Uh, I think that reason enables us to find out what the proper characteristics of anything is. And, and, and in doing so, we can, um, uh, we can identify what, what justice means. Socrates is very clear uh, earlier on in, in the end, and he really doesn't differ from it at the end, that justice is doing your own thing. You know, if you're a carpenter, you should be a carpenter and not tell the jeweler how to make jewelry. And if you're a, a jeweler, you should not be telling the carpenter how to how to put down a put down a floor. Uh, and if you're a uh, if you're one of the the, the merchants or the husbands, you shouldn't be telling the guardians how to be doing their jobs. And if you're a guardian, uh, a warrior, uh, you should be protecting the city internally and externally. And you should not be telling the philosopher king how to be doing their jobs, that every class, uh, the gold, the silver, and the bronze has their own activities. And the unjust is, is from one class to impinge its will upon another or one individual in, in in one activity to impinge his or her uh, uh, will upon upon somebody else. So I think that reason enables us to be able to find the good and bad in in everything. And to me, this sort of sounds like finding its uh, utility or uh, what Aristotle would later later call its formal cause. You know why it is. Uh, why it is what it is. And then justice would be for that thing, whatever it is to do its thing and not something else. And reason enables us to determine what its thing is for any particular object or activity or, uh, or action or, or concept. Mm -hmm. um, well, thank you. And, and you know, I, I think you've mentioned the idea that justice uh, is to stick to kind of what you know and not, you know, tread on others' domains. Um, and reason allows us to find the good and the bad and the formal cause, I think is what you said, the, the original cause maybe. Um, and so maybe that's one interpretation. Um, 
any other thoughts on the nature of justice before we wind up our wonderful six-part series on the Republic? I, I've learned so much from this from this uh, series, and it, it's been so great to have all of these discussions and, and get all of these different perspectives and ideas and to try to put them together. Uh, maybe there has been some justice in the process itself um, in, in terms of, you know, to use Bill's word, balancing perspectives. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, I guess maybe maybe the question will never be fully resolved, um, especially if justice is some form of harmony, because I think to each of us, uh, we have our own idea of what harmony is. Um, but I think, you know, maybe at the end of the day, whether you believe that justice is harmony or something else, um, maybe it's a question of then trying to extend that to some sort of eternal state. Uh, you know, if, if you're trying to find, as, as Moshe just said, the original cause or the formal cause, I think was your uh, word, Moshe, uh, you know, that would be the eternal cause, the unchanging cause. Um, and so maybe whether it's harmony or the original cause, you know, just we, we need, we're sitting here in the present and we need to find that kind of eternal state. And maybe that's what we're always trying to do is, is to go from this changing state to the eternal state, because that gives us security of knowledge, perhaps. So any last thoughts before we, before we break? Um, we'll break for the holidays and return on January 9th, as I said, with uh, a discussion on the first part of Philebus. And uh, we'll have the chance to uh, speak after we stop the recording um, about um, this philosophy in general or Plato or whatever we like to, to do for those who want to stay on. Well, th Thank you. Thank you all so much for participating. And uh, I do want to wish everybody a great holiday and uh, look forward to seeing you all on January 9th. And thank you again for some just amazing and wonderful thoughts and comments. And uh, I think we've all learned from this very much. So a good holiday to everybody and those who wish to stay on. I will uh, stop the recording and uh, we can continue. Thank you. Thank you.